So welcome everybody to um, our next lesson. So we've already looked at marriage as a sacrament and we've sort of fleshed out some of the ethics that come within the marital life. What does marital chastity look like and some of the problems pastorally and ethically that we face. I'm going to pass now to look at the next sort of theological section of looking at chastity or celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. It's a complementary vocation uh, to marriage. You know, one of the things that the world certainly does not understand and I would say even hates about the church is the reality of celibacy and virginity. How could one live a life um, without sex? How could it be fulfilling? Uh, some will even say that it is repressive. Uh, and some will even blame the sex abuse crisis on it. We'll look at that a little bit more later on. Uh, Pope Benedict has said a fair amount about celibacy and, and the gift, particularly to the priesthood. And so this is a quote of his. It is true that for the agnostic world, the world in which God does not enter, celibacy is a great scandal. Because it shows exactly that God is considered and experienced as reality. With the eschatological dimension of celibacy, the future world of God enters into the reality of our time, unquote. So there's a lot going on here. We're going to sort of unpack it as the class goes on. First, it's a scandal, a stumbling block, as we've already seen. People have a hard time understanding or overcoming it. Inside of the church, too, it's probably the main reason that people um, hesitate to commit their lives to the priesthood or religious life or some form of consecrated life. And there are, of course, calls to get rid of it from within the church, uh, particularly to get rid of married priesthood. It would cure the vocation crisis. I always found it ironic uh, that there's no equal call or parallel call for getting rid of celibacy for religious sisters to consecrate it. Why not? Uh, you know, it seems like another expression of the patriarchy. The men get all the power and they get to get married. What about poor women? I think it just shows that maybe there's not really a a very well thought out um, process there. But anyhow, we're going to spend time looking today at the scandal of celibacy in the church, drawing heavily from the section in Theology of the Body on celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, and so again, we're not going to look at it necessarily as a whole, um, but I gave you the assignment to read about it. We're going to sort of intersperse ideas from John Paul II uh, throughout the context of this overall reflection. The first question I think is the most important, and this is sort of for your own theological understanding, but also for just a very basic apologetic approach. Why celibacy? Why is this? Why does it exist? How do we give a reason or explanation for why celibacy exists as a practice in the church? Uh, you're going to hear that it's a medieval institution to make sure priests and the church can keep their property or things like this. Uh, but let's get to the real reasons um, and to sort of flesh this out in the brief amount of time that we have. First of all, forms of celibacy are men and women who renounce marriage exist in, in other religious traditions, mostly as a form of asceticism for some of them in the sort of uh, picture understanding the world and the flesh is bad. So they're rejecting the flesh. You see this in Buddhism. Um, not necessarily they're rejecting the flesh, but they're living this very uh, ascetic life, these Buddhist monks. But we don't see it in Judaism. Uh, up until the Quran, those waiting for the Messiah, um, it was seen as a curse. We've already looked a little bit about that. Uh, people bewailing their virginity or not having children. Why? Uh, for this Jewish tradition, because of the command to be fruitful and multiply, 
and more importantly, the desire or the hope or even certain the responsibility that women had to be the mother of the Messiah, to be that virgin, that handmaid who would be chosen. So to see on, to die unmarried or barren was seen as a curse. So why did celibacy then become a thing in Christianity? Like I said, John the Baptist, we believe, wasn't married along with the people in the Qumran sect. Um, they were sort of really waiting for, and they knew that the Messiah was coming imminently. But outside of that, well, why for Christianity? And, and, and I'm going to give the main reason, which is just the clearly the most obvious one, and I think most people just don't see, is because Jesus was celibate. He didn't marry. Um, we have no evidence of this craziness with Mary Magdalene or any of these other types of things. So the reason that people throughout the history of the church have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom is because Jesus did, and it's an imitation of Christ and an imitation of Mary, who we've always believed, church tradition, uh, remained virginal and um, was married to Joseph, but in you know, with a little different sense. So it's a participation, in fact, we could say, in Christ's own celibacy or virginity. Um, so John Paul II, in Theology of the Body, uh, Audience 75, chapter or paragraph 1, says, Continence for the sake of the kingdom carried above all the imprint of likeness to Christ to himself and the work of redemption made this choice for the kingdom of heaven. Well, why was Christ celibate? Well, theologically, because he was married to the church. He came as the bridegroom to marry the church. And so we can see, you know, the, the virginal and Eucharistic and spousal imagery all present throughout here that would be developed in some other some other deeper class. But ultimately, because Christ was not married, an imitation of Christ, the church takes up this practice. Second, and this is the real important part for theology and particularly theology of the body, is that it is an eschatological sign. Remember, eschatology pointing to the last things, to the next life, particularly to point to heaven, where we believe from Scripture uh, people do not marry nor are given in marriage. And there are going to be two passages that are important. One, Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 to 12. Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom that it is granted. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Sometimes the translation says eunuchs. Uh, because Some because they were made so by others. Ouch. And some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to accept it. Uh, and, you know, the other passage, Matthew 22, verse 30. At the resurrection, they neither marry nor give it in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So here are the clear statement, there's no marriage in heaven. Why? Because marriage is a sacramental sign of the union of Christ and his church. In heaven, you're going to be participating in the wedding supper of the Lamb, so you don't need the sacramental sign. Um, so what happens is, and this is the key, celibates for the sake of the kingdom um, begin to live this reality now on earth. They're living heaven on earth. This is what Ratzinger said. The future reality is lived on earth. So while it's not a sacrament, as marriage would be or priesthood would be, celibacy has sort of a quasi-sacramental value. Uh, within this, John Paul II also talks about, and we're going to look at it later in the semester, that the celibacy is a sign that the body tends towards glorification. 
so because it's pointing to the next kingdom, it's also pointing to the resurrection. So what does it mean to, to share in the spirit, to, to sort of begin to share in that resurrected life? But it shows ultimately the, the finality of our choice. Um, it, it's, it's not just about the future fulfillment. It has something to do with the choice we make on earth. So in Theology of the Body, in this section that deals with celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, uh, audience 76, uh, paragraph 3, it allows and enables us in a particular way to identify ourselves with the truth and reality of this kingdom, precisely as it is revealed by Christ in his evangelical message, and above all, by the personal example of his life and actions. So it's really completing the mystery of redemption, in a particular way in his own flesh, thereby finding also thereby the imprint of a likeness with Christ. And so, uh, so yes, because Christ's body and resurrection is pointing to the next life, we are sharing that too. Um, this is what it is all about. It's a participation, as it were, in that mystery of redemption. Uh, and Christ is implanting his likeness, implanting uh, his spirit in us now. Third, I guess in a certain sense, a very practical way, and this comes from the Catechism, it has a section on chastity or celibacy, uh, 2349. It exists so that, that they, those who give up marriage for the sake of the kingdom, uh, can love God with an undivided heart. Um, so we're, we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit later on. Um, that it is a sign of belonging totally to God, of not being attached to the things of the earth. Now, of course, we can see this as one of the, the evangelical councils, along with poverty and obedience, and this is why it's connected. Uh, you're, you're not connected to your own will, you're not connected to material wealth, and you're not connected to this physical pleasure or the, the reality or the good of marriage. So it really, as much as it's giving up sexual activity and, and marriage in the body, it's really more about the heart. And this goes back to our discussion we had already about purity of heart. It is an expression of the purity of heart, of a heart that is attached to God, that sees God. Uh, and so there's a contemplative and prayerful dimension of this too. And so the, 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 the reality we live in our body should reflect that sacramentally what goes on in the person in the heart, in the interior state. Um, so it doesn't mean that these individuals, such as myself, who have given up marriage for the sake of the kingdom, can't love others, but we are there to love God and to give ourselves to him totally with that undivided heart. that We belong to him. Fourth, um, um, this is maybe sort of the more practical reason. So as much as we can get into these deeper spiritual, eschatological reasons, or even sacramental reasons, there's a practical reason, too, and that is so that we, um, those who renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom, can have the freedom to serve Christ. We go to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 33. He says, I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please the Lord, but a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. So, you know, Paul was not married, gave him the freedom to do all of his apostolic travels and missions. 
And so the person who is celibate who doesn't have to worry about, let's say, a job necessarily, although consecrated virgins can worry about jobs, um, but don't have to worry about you know, taking care of the kids or pleasing a wife or all the things that, that, that do happen, you can really serve the Lord in a much deeper way. And not only through service to others, but in your own prayer life and, and, and having that deeper contemplative communion with him. Um, and that's the key. It's not just the physical service. Uh, you're free to, to preach or to say mass or to travel and do missionary work or to teach or be in the hospital. It really is a, about contemplation and about worship. Uh, there's got to be a deeper a deeper spiritual dimension, as we're going to talk about later, if it's just this thing that's imposed from the outside, um, rules and laws, it's going to become oppressive. Uh, it needs to be a grace to live it out from the inside of the heart. Now, in this idea of sort of the, 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 con- the celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, particularly for the priest here, um, as a form or connected to contemplation and worship, he, he talks about this um, about in the the Old Testament, uh, priests had to dedicate themselves to worship only during uh, set times. To, 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 and marriage and the priesthood were not compatible. Uh, so the, these leverets were not, uh, Levites, I'm sorry, were not married. So there were certain exceptions there. And why? And this is what he'll say. Because of the regular and often even daily celebration of the Eucharist, the situation of the priests of the Church of Jesus Christ has changed radically. From now on, their entire life is in contact with the divine mystery. This requires on their part exclusivity with regard to God. Consequently, this excludes other ties that, like marriage, involve one's whole life. From the daily celebration of the Eucharist, which implies a permanent state of service to God, is born spontaneously the impossibility of a matrimonial bond. We can say that the sexual abstinence that was functional was transformed automatically into an ontological abstinence. Thus, its motivation and its significance were changed from within and profoundly. And so what Ratzinger will say elsewhere is that Lord becomes the priest inheritance in the Old Testament. This is, this is what I get. I don't have a tract of land in the Old Testament. The priest didn't. I belong to the Lord. The Lord is my inheritance and enables me to serve and offer fitting worship. So there is that intimate connection to the Eucharist. Um, and so you see, it's just not purely utilitarian. There is a functional dimension to this, I'm not denying this at all, but um, there's a deep spiritual uh, dimension of adoration and contemplation. But finally, celibacy is a loving response to a call from Christ. This idea to give up marriage for the sake of the kingdom is not something natural. We talked about that, that natural inclination to sex, the natural inclination to marriage. To to renounce that has to be something supernatural, a call that comes from without, but has to be accepted and experienced from within. Uh, And so the call comes, and so celibacy isn't just, I am doing this, it's not a monologue, it is a response. And, And as we talked about in moral theology, it's not a response to a law, um, or this is fundamentals, but a response to a person, a person. Um, and so this is going to be from Theology of the Body, number 79, um, paragraph or section 9. I'm going to read it in its entirety. 
It is a characteristic feature of the human heart to accept even difficult demands in the name of love for an ideal, and above all, in the name of love for a person. Love is, in fact, oriented by its very nature toward the person. And so, in this call to continence for the kingdom of heaven, first the disciples and then the whole living tradition of the church quickly discovered the love of Christ himself as the bridegroom of the church, bridegroom of souls to whom he has given himself to the end, and the mystery of his Passover and the Eucharist. And this is the real key section here. In this way, continence with the kingdom of heaven, choice of virginity or celibacy for one's whole life has become, in the experience of the disciples and followers of Christ, the act of a personal response to the love of the divine bridegroom, and therefore acquired the meaning of an act of spousal love, that is, of spousal gift of self, with the end of answering, in a particular way, the Redeemer's spousal love, a gift of self understood as a renunciation, but realized above all out of love. Unquote. So again, it's not chosen out of pure obedience that the church is here to oppress us. It's got to be a free choice and one out of love for Christ and of souls. It's got to be the primary motivator. A love that desires in that spousal gift of self to give of oneself uh, completely, um, both for men and especially for women. Uh, so those are kind of the basic reasons that we can give for celibacy. So this idea that it was just imposed from without, no. We see it going back to the earliest days of the church. It didn't, of course, become sort of an institution uh, for priests in the West until much later. We may get into that discussion um, about the, the wisdom of that. Could this, this law for priests be lifted? Um, I think most priests that I know would not want to be married. They, they like and they cherish their celibacy and the freedom it gives them uh, and the depth of spirituality. So just several things to keep in mind here um, as we sort of reflect a little bit more on these reasons for celibacy or continence for the sake of the kingdom. The first is that it has to be a free choice. Even though it's a requirement for priests, or most priests in the Western Church, it is never forced. It must be discerned and freely chosen. Um, because it, it has this sort of like covenantal dimension because of the gift of self. That's why, uh, you know, you, you belong, you've committed yourself in this covenantal relationship. That's why you can't be married. Um, but it's never forced has to be discerned, it has to be freely chosen, there has to be a grace to receive it. Um, so John Paul II says that continence for the sake of the kingdom is the fruit of a charismatic choice. So this idea it has to be grace, and it's an exception to the, the general rule of life, he says. Um, you know, Balthazar talks about the stream that all baptized people are in. And most of the people are like a little fish going in the stream. The celibate's plucked out in order to belong to God, but also to serve those who are in the stream. Um, we'll get a little bit more into that. But it's a conscious and voluntary uh, renunciation of the good of marriage. Um, we're not gonna. We're not denying the marriage is good. We're not saying oh, I'm getting rid of marriage because. I can't be celibate, or I don't like marriage, or it's a bad thing. No, this is a good thing that I am going to give up. And so we're subordinating our, our concupiscence, our, even our good desires, 
for marital union to the power of the spirit given as a gift. And so second, it does take a gift, a grace to live it out. The church has always been clear in that. Uh, we can't just white knuckle celibacy. Um, if you do that, you're going to drain yourself and you're going to make everyone around you miserable. Because uh, it does. It, for it to have that deeper quasi-sacramental significance, it has to go beyond purely natural capacities. Um, and so, you know, celibates and married both receive their own gifts of the Spirit. It's not going to make it easy. Um, it's a good challenge. As long as you get you got those hormones in your body, as long as you're dealing with concupiscence, there are going to be times of struggle. But, but in time, as we've talked about, the chaste person is able to gather themselves, and they're going to choose period of heart, and it makes a greater freedom in the gift of self. And so that's why this gift has to be fanned into flame and prayer. If you're not praying, breviary, or holy hours, interceding, and it's done in a lived relationship with Christ, it's just not going to work. And so without a doubt, though, even with all of this, it is not easy. It's a share in the cross, and we're going to talk about that in our next class. It's a renunciation of the most fundamental of human desires. Not, not a suppression, we're not suppressing ourselves, but almost, I guess, a rechanneling. Um, it's always a challenge, but I think it does get a little bit easier as you get older. You know, it's how things work. You know, the body doesn't have the same energy and vivacity it did when you were young. It never gets easy, but it does, I think, get a little bit easier, particularly for priests after you've done enough marriage counseling, you're thinking, whoa, I don't know. <sighs> I thought that was going to be easy, you know, getting married, and we're going to, we've talked about it. We're going to be living the theology of the body. No, there's the cross. There is definitely the cross. Here's a powerful quote from Bombalthazar, and someone shared with this with me as a seminarian, and has really inspired me ever since, uh, particularly when I contemplate the idea of celibacy and renunciation as a share in the cross when things are, are not easy. He says, while maintaining total simplicity in their attitude to sexuality, they, these are consecrated people, celibates, look on the consecration of their sexual powers to God, which I think is interesting, sort of setting aside yourself and your sexual powers, as a most serious matter, affecting their priestly vocation at the deepest level. Ready for a possible lifelong struggle, priests, although I think you could say women's religious or women's consecrated, regard the unsatisfied longing for completion and the loneliness of an often unsuccessful priestly ministry as a grace of participation in the cross of the Lord. So uh, over the years, several things have jumped out at me. One I've already said, consecration. We talked so much about sexuality as being holy and sacred and needs to be reverenced. Here, we're, we're recognizing that and even more so setting aside for holiness, setting aside for the Lord. But he also talks about this unsatisfied longing for completion. The, the struggle isn't just, oh, I have to give up sex and sexual pleasure. No, it's a desire to give of oneself and, and to receive, and for that companionship that is so good and important uh, for living out a healthy life, men and women. But he also points to the fact of the loneliness of an unsuccessful or often unsuccessful ministry. It's going to be tied to the struggles priests experience in other areas. 
Uh, you know, go go read Diary of a Country Priest. Uh, priest struggled. There are going to be struggles. And so it's just connected to all of that. Um, priestly life is a joyful life. It's not a miserable life at all. Um, because you can make yourself miserable. But there are going to be struggles. And there's sometimes going to be feelings of isolation. And this is what you signed up for um, when you, you say yes to it. So I think part of it is we're going to see in our next class. We've got to be realistic. We can sit and have all this theology about celibacy and theology of the body and virginity. Same thing with marriage. But let's talk about what really goes on in marriage, the struggles that are really faced. Um, but the same thing with celibacy. Uh, but along with this, and this is that sort of third reflection under this looking at the different reasons of celibacy, it's got to be more than simple asceticism. I've repeated this. If that's all it is, if I'm just giving up marriage so that I can, like, you know, Exodus 90 for the rest of my life, um, it's going to crush you. It's going to crush you. Uh, because it's, it, 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 and this is, I think, is the key, at least from for, for my understanding, you're not doing it for yourself primarily. You're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline myself. I'm going to be so holy. I'm going to be consecrated to the Lord. No. The real key for purity of heart and celibacy is it's not primarily for your own sanctification. There may be some people who disagree with me on this. But it's done for an embrace for Jesus to belong to him, but also for others. So we talked about it. People need our purity of heart. They need to be loved and that possession in detachment. So celibacy is not an ends in itself. And I think sometimes people say, well, they approach it like it's an ends in itself. No, it's a means to an ends. Uh, and why? We are celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, for this greater good, for where we're going. And so as a result, it it's, ties back to this idea that it's an expression of love, the spousal meaning of the body. If celibacy is spousal, then you know what? It, 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 it's got to be done out of love. And there are going to be struggles in love, but because I love my spouse, I'm willing to give of myself. And it takes the burden, and it makes it light. It makes it joy-filled. Sometimes it's not, and that's going to be realistic. But if it's taken out of love for Christ and for others in order to serve, particularly for the Dawson priest, whose whole sort of life is ordered towards service, mediation, intercession, um, it, it's going to be crucial. Now, a big part of sort of moving on here, a big part of our understanding of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom and the history of the church and also in theology of the body is looking at these two vocations or we're going to talk about states of life, marriage, uh, belonging, as I say, to another person totally, and then celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, whatever form it takes as another state of life of belonging to Christ totally. Um, they complement each other. Now, in the traditional church teaching, uh, celibacy for the sake of the kingdom is seen as better or more perfect. And now this kind of riles people up, but let me explain why. Because in the history of the church, particularly as St. Thomas will express it, its end, its final goal, its final cause is better because it's ordered towards the supernatural primarily, um, living for the next life. Marriage, as much as there's a sacramental dimension to it, it's very much rooted in this life, um, bringing children for the, 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 the sake of the good of the church. Um, so if you can look at the Secunda Secunde of St. Thomas, question 152, article 4, to see his reasoning there, 
but also in Theology of the Body, number 77, uh, point six or paragraph six, um, celibacy is superior. And John Paul II says it because of the mode of the kingdom of heaven. But since Vatican II, as we've talked about, there's been a renewal of the appreciation of marriage and the lay vocation. Uh, marriage not just as a contract, but as a covenant. And the role the laity have, that it's not just for priests and nuns who are celibate to be holy, to be saints. Everyone, everyone's called to be a saint. In fact, the holiest people I know tend to be married people, um, which should be a reality check for, for priests in particular. And so the rooting, though, is is this this reality, the renunciation of marriage is the renunciation of a good. So even though we may say that celibacy for the sake of the kingdom is more perfect or better because it's final end, it's not saying that marriage is bad. No, it's a really good thing. Um, you are renouncing not an evil, but a good. So it's not like saying I'm... I'm renouncing murdering people to be pro-life. No, you shouldn't be murdering people in the first place. Uh, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm giving up crystal meth or something which is terribly bad. No, you're giving up something which is really inherently good and, and you should desire for the sake of another good. So in reality, if we understand it properly, the renunciation inherent in celibacy for the sake of the kingdom is an affirmation of marriage as a good. It's a giving up a good or even a great for a better. Um, John Paul II will talk about uh, in Theology of the Body, continence is sort of somewhere between renunciation and love. There's a, a negative and a positive sense. So I am, yes, renouncing, that's the negative sense, the good of marriage, but I'm choosing Christ. I'm choosing the Lord. So there, there's a, there's a, there's a spousal good. I'm giving myself. Uh, we're going to get back to this a little bit later on and just sort of the practicality of getting people to understand and appreciate celibacy. So the two vocations are, are not in opposition, or, or one is technically always the better one to choose. Since Vatican II, there's an emphasis on complementarity because both of them are manifestations of spousal love. And Christian perfection is not going to be judged on, oh, well, you were a priest or a nun, you get to go to heaven. No, it's measured by the standard of love. Quite possibly, priests and nuns will be judged in a more harsh way, a more rigorous way, but we've got to see these two working together. And it's been such a, a great gift um, as a priest to have so many married couple friends. And it's going to be essential for you fellows as a priest uh, to get to know married couples and to be part of their life where you can feel the love and, 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 and in a very real practical pastoral way uh, that you can both accompany each other. Uh, we'll bring in, you know, uh, particularly for a parish priest, you know, bringing in this idea of accompaniment. It, it's so crucial. So, you know, and, and if you're going to understand celibacy then because of this complementarity, that you're going to have to sort of see celibacy in light of marriage. Uh, we talked about as that gift of self. So a lot of the, the terminology that we use for marriage, particularly in Theology of the Body, can be applied to celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. Married person gives his or herself to one totally, uh, and the celibate gives themselves to all. This is one of the big distinctions Balthazar makes. Uh, this this heart that is meant for all, a gift of self, a radical availability. 
And with it, there should be a freedom of the gift. Uh, I should want to because it's motivated by love. I've learned to, to control my passions. But the real interesting thing is, is just as there can be contraception, that refusal of the gift of self, uh, total gift of self, in marriage, it can exist as a celibate where you can hold yourself back or as a priest choose to live a bachelor lifestyle. And I remember when I first heard that, I said, whoa, priests can contracept. Oh yeah, they can. They absolutely can by not being open to life and not being willing to really give of themselves. And so, you know, if you take this spousal analogy and you take the language of John Paul II and apply it, that celibacy for the sake of the kingdom is just another expression of the communion of persons. Uh, it's a new form of intersubjective spiritual communion. And there's a fruitfulness that comes with it. And that was, gosh, my experience over at UL and my time in ministry. We go to uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 28 to 30. Lo, the apostles, Peter says to, to Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. And what does Jesus say in return? There is no man who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive manifold more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Uh, these are the spiritual sons and daughters that you receive, that the Lord gives you in the great joy of celebrating with him. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, that uh, well, let me put this way, there's a Eucharistic connection here too, uh, because, you know, you're giving of self in the Mass, and your people are joining with you, and so it's Christ giving himself, uh, but it is also you, and so there's a real deep bond that is connected, that we're all sort of connected in the Eucharist, but that's going to be for your Eucharistic um, uh, theology class. Here's a little point that came to me a while back and I've been reflecting on. So this is Luke chapter 18. Is Luke 15 is the prodigal son. I've been reflecting a lot of that lately and how all these parables of Jesus connect back to the prodigal son. But remember the older son, the older son who was not married and still living at home. He compares himself to the younger son and sort of says the father's not fair. It's not fair to him that he goes and does all these things and he gets to be celebrated. Part of it, you might say, is he's like, this guy got to go have all this fun and have sex with all these prostitutes and sow his wild oats, and here I am, just celibate, doing nothing. You could even say, though, however, he's just a guy who goes to enjoy himself, even in marriage, and we can become very embittered and comparing ourselves, wishing we had that, or resenting others who have it and we don't. But what the key is, is whenever he says to the father, you know, you wouldn't even give me a kid to celebrate with my friends. And this is the real issue. He keeps focusing on what he doesn't have, this scarcity instead of the abundance of friends that he does have, that he lives in the Father's house. He's got everything. Uh, and, the, and then he does have a lot of people that have been given to him that he can celebrate with. Uh, and so uh, the women's religious, let's say, who's living in community, or the priest who is living in a parish, You've been given a lot of people, and Jesus says there, in this life and in the next life. Uh, and we've got to realize that as a real gift um, that the, the, the older son just doesn't realize, but he's got to see that he's he's been given so much. And we've got to get out of that mentality of comparison. Uh, and part of it, we'll talk about more living celibacy. What does that mean to, to truly renounce and to, to give up the what-if 
of marriage. I do want to make a, a point here about celibacy and sexual difference, since we spent so much time about that. And we could do a whole class on it. But I want to, to sort of note the difference both theologically and I think in experience, even though I'm not a woman, uh, of celibacy experience between men and women. Bo- both are spousal, but yeah, there's a little different sacramental symbolism, theological symbolism. Uh, for for women in particular, and seen in the church as especially spousal, all of it is, but women in particular, if you look at the language of the, the, the rite of consecration or, or religious profession, it is the bride to the bridegroom. Um, the consecrated virgin, in fact, is going to sort of wear a wedding dress, and she has her maids or her attendants. Um, and so there is that spousal dimension that's really highlighted, particularly the, the woman who is consecrated belongs to Jesus as a bride. That love has to be spousal. So they too renounce the good of marriage for a different spousal gift of self. self. Um, and another point here, which we discussed more last year, but just didn't have the time to get into this year, is this not just consecration for women, but was becoming more popular the vocation or the invitation to consecrated virginity. Even though technically men can be virgins, within the church there's only consecrated women virgins. What is the meaning? Not so much of consecrated virginity, but virginity as a whole. If you think people don't understand celibacy, they really don't understand virginity. Well, I mean, really it's technically a complete belonging to the Lord uh, and the totality of their being. Uh, they've never given themselves, nor will they ever give themselves to others. But the fact is, is the real reason is so simple, is because just as the priest is more conformed to Christ, uh, that's consecrated virgin in the world is more conformed to Mary. Uh, and it's a sign, even in the body, because Mary was a biologically a virgin before, during, and after birth, um, of this total belonging to the Lord. So it sort of better perfectly symbolizes a Mary, showing that biology matters. There can be purity of heart, but this physical virginity, again, we can get all kinds of technical issues. You know, what if she lost it, not through sexual behavior, or what if the woman had sexual behavior, but not intercourse? We're not going to get into that here. Um, but there is just a higher symbolism of Mary. And I think, too, from my experience, women religious as a whole is just a very welcoming presence. Uh, priests tend to be intimidating. I've given stories before of being in airports that religious sisters, people don't even pay attention to the priest. They want to talk to sister. So I kind of think sometimes people maybe even wanted to talk to Jesus or the apostles, but would go to Mary or the women first and have them bring them to Jesus uh, because they're just often easier to approach. I just want to offer the one insight from a former directee of mine and who's now in formation in a women's religious order on virginity and its importance. And I think there's some profundity here that I'll share with you and she wouldn't mind me doing it. Uh, She said, there is a certain joy in letting yourself be set aside for the Lord alone. And this light virginity is a gift to be given and one which gives in return. The more of ourselves we offer to God, the more peace and joy we receive. This peace and joy come in abundance, and so virginity allows hearts to love more and share this peace and joy with others, unquote. Again, there's a lot to unpack here, but the the real line that I love is a joy in letting yourself be set aside for the Lord alone. It's not the Lord just coming and appropriating you. You are welcoming this. You're letting yourself be aside. You realize that you're chosen. 
He's chosen you. He's invited you to this. And the great joy. This is Mary when she realized she was chosen to be the mother of God. Um, I've read some reflections on that. We think like, Mary is be done in me according to thy word. And she goes in a very somber way to Elizabeth. No, it would have been great joy. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'm the one who was chosen. I got the golden ticket. People for millennia had been waiting for this, the, the fulfillment of that, that prophecy. One other last note on this, a note on the complementarity of celibate vocations. We've been talking so much about uh, men and women and their complementarity uh, and their vocations in general. And this comes from a sister, Alexandra Diriart, who teaches at the JV2 in Rome. Uh, and she has this essay in this book on priestly fatherhood, um, where it's a collection of different essays from different speakers, that basically the, those two vocations of men and women who are consecrated, uh, their vocations complement each other where the priest sort of helps the consecrated woman in fulfilling that baptismal priesthood, uh, the Eucharistic offering of their life, um, because that's what the priest is, so Eucharistic conformed to the Mass, helping the sister to do that. But then this is what she says about how the sister helps the priest. She says, quote, and this is the translation, I think that the woman, and in particular the consecrated woman, has a particular role to play as a mother to reveal to the priest her, uh, his paternity, highlighting the true face of the priesthood, not primarily as a functionary or as an administrator, but as the radiation of the fatherhood of the father, and in doing so, helping the priest to commit himself as a father to the sons and daughters that the Lord gave to him. So again, this is something more that we could really reflect on, but uh, some something for you to consider, um, particularly as we talked about that men and women need women need to have a greater role in the church. What that looks like, we, we'll figure that out. Uh, to be that prophetess, to be the queen, um, and to be able to have these complementary vocations. And I think you're going to see not only more and more women want to be involved, but possibly a greater movement for women to be consecrated, to belong to Christ, and to work alongside priests and men of the church. Um, and sort of like trying to maybe bring this whole discussion to a conclusion, a lot of the previous class that I did last year had some practical stuff that I'm transferring to a later class. Um, wanting to talk a little bit about this challenge or the stumbling block that celibacy is. It's so hard for some people to accept. Um, and why? And I think this is maybe the marketing aspect of it. Marriage, particularly since Vatican II, and the of the body is is cast in this very positive light. The odds of the body, the gift of self, you know, how wonderful the vocation is. But celibacy is still defined and described in kind of a really negative way. Marriage is the gift of self to another, a way to love another person and children, the sign, the sacrament of Christ's love. But what do we hear about celibacy? Oh, it's a renunciation. It's a sacrifice. And this sort of, not negative language as if it's bad, but we focus on what we give up. Uh, but I want to propose, just like with chastity or purity, it's not so much what you give up, but it is a good that you choose. Uh, we would benefit ourselves as priests, as religious, as the church, of describing it in a more positive manner. Uh, to make it not just more attractive, but I mean, accurately. If everything that we talked about today is true, that it is still about the gift of self. It's a unique way of loving others, uh, a unique way of loving as Christ loved in the world. 
chaste, celibate, uh, virginal love. Um, and so it's not just, of course, the way we describe it, it's the way we live it, um, particularly to the, the great attractiveness, as we've talked about over and over again, what's the great attractiveness of the moral life? It's not, oh, this is so reasonable and it makes sense to me and this is a natural law. It's the joy that comes from living a moral life, living a life of following Christ. And so, yeah, man, I tell you, some of the most joyful people I know, we've talked about it, are people who are priests or religious who really lean into this gift of self. Now, granted, some of those miserable people I know, too, might be the priests or the religious but it's just like in marriage, if you're not giving of yourself, if you're not committed in love, well, it's going to really become a burden. It's not going to be something that gives life. So just sort of in conclusion, and this is landing the plane, but we're going to have to circle the runway a little bit before we do so. I'm going to argue that the church needs celibacy. It's a discipline. There's no doubt about that. The church could technically change it. Uh, of course, this is the whole discussion of the Amazon Senate a few years ago. The problem was, is I think that it was just purely functional. That celibacy is seen as just a function instead of this understanding of the sacramental vision of what, what, what it symbolizes, what it means, what it allows us to participate in. But of course, as we've seen as a world and sometimes as a church, uh, people have lost that sacramental vision. And we hear so much, and rightfully so, of the need of mothers and fathers, uh, the family, and, 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 and their love, and the, the culture and the civilization of love, and how the culture and the church and the family are built in the family. And I'm not denying that's important. But my argument is, is the church can offer also the unique beauty of celibate love, of virginal love. Um, and that the world needs it just as much. We sort of alluded to this before. Um, we talked a little bit about this virginal love, this chastity as the possesso nel distacco, the possession and detachment, um, where all perfect love, and particularly virginal or celibate love, is going to be one where I, I give of myself fully, um, but I don't grasp. I, I don't cling or smother. There's always a freedom in yourself, but for the other. You belong to me. You have given to, been given to me the possession and detachment, but you don't belong to me. And so you, you see Mary, she, she's not grasping at Christ. She's letting him ascend into heaven. She's letting him go to the Father on the cross. And, and it's one that affirms the other person's freedom. It affirms their dignity. Um, but still, it's very real, and even there's, there's the heart in it. It's got to be emotional. The celibate isn't going to, I'm loving in a very detached way. Uh, Father Jacques Philippe talks about it. People need to know that they're loved and experience it, and, and it's a risk, no doubt, um, but it was better than just being cold and harsh and the Lord loves you, uh, That to have an effective maturity. And so, as we'll talk about, you know, to really truly live celibacy, there has to be uh, that, that human integration and that effective maturity. This is mostly what we're talking about now, um, just it, from a theological perspective, so we can look more at uh, how it's particularly lived out within the context of sexual ethics. But I said, you know, people need it, um, especially those who have been objectified and abused. Uh, who need us, priests, religious, to love them in a pure, detached way. 
uh, and this is something in particular, which again, I've talked about before in other areas, uh, celibacy gives us a certain solidarity with the marginalized and disabled, those who struggle and can't claim sexual rights. Particularly, I think, with the LGBT or the homosexual community, uh, there's a solidarity there. Okay, yeah, we're saying you got to live chaste lives, but I'm doing it too, and I'm going to help you. We're going to do it together. You're not alone in this. And that's uh, celibacy and accompaniment are very, very tied together. And I, and I think if more people realize that, there would be a, a people want to accompany. They want to be there with the privileged and disabled, the underprivileged and disabled. So Mother Teresa's celibacy helped her to do that, to free her to be there. But she was also kind of like one. There was a solidarity with those people who had been dejected and rejected by others. But also, and this is from an article by Father Paolo Prosperi. Um, he wrote for Comunio a few years back, which he's CL, so he kind of writes all over the place. But his ultimate ideas and virginity and celibacy are so, so important because he says it ultimately enables us to see and love people as Christ did. So we talked about there's, there's, a, there's a horizontal, not just a vertical dimension to this. He says, how did Christ see and love people? How did he gaze upon the world? Christ saw everything, the flower, the bird, the Samaritan woman, as well as each of his disciples as a gift of the Father. It's coming to him, as it were, out of the bottomless mystery of the Father. Better yet, Jesus saw his disciples as a gift of the Father, entrusted to his care, as a gift to be cared for and to give his life for. The sacramental vision, to be able to have that vision, to see everything is given by the Father. Uh, even more, he says, because in Jesus, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, he's the, the icon, or as Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's the icon of the Father. So Christ shows us the gaze of the Father. And that gaze is the one that we've seen, shows us our dignity, the infinite love, that it's good that you exist. And so you can imagine as Christ looking at you, it's the Father looking at you um, through the eyes of Christ. And so the priest as an altar Christus is called to image and share in Christ his life, his love, his seeing. Um, and so just as we call it the sacrament du sacrament, the, the priest is Christ is the sacrament of the Father, the priest is the sacrament of the Christ, so the priest is the sacrament of the Father. You're giving the Father's gaze, or Christ is gazing through you. And so Prosperi says virginity is more about entering a new way of seeing and loving the world, the whole world than about renouncing sex. So that, that's so crucial. That's not something negative. It's something positive uh, to be able to to see as Christ did, a new way of seeing the world with that purity of heart and thus seeing God. And so, you know, going back to this possession and detachment, it's a way of loving, of a pure chaste look and seeing the other person uh, as an individual and as uh, a gift rather than... Um, an object, and so many people, of course, as we know, have been objectified sexually in their lives. And, and I really want to begin concluding by a quote from Cardinal Piacenza. I think I gave as one of the optional readings his long sort of reflection on celibacy. Uh, that 
celibacy and, and the, the look of the priest or the sister and the way that we love and that pure heart can be a powerful to, tool for evangelization in our overly eroticized world. And it says, it is clear to all how, especially in our secularized society, perfect continence for the kingdom represents one of the most effective and potent witnesses to provoke the intelligence and the heart of our contemporaries in a healthy way. Sort of like what Ratzinger said. In a climate which is eroticized to an ever greater degree, and almost violently so, chastity above all of those in the church who are imbued with the ministerial priesthood represents an ever uh, more powerfully eloquent challenge to the dominant culture and, in the end, concerning the question of the very existence of God, proclaiming the possibility of knowing him and entering into a relationship with him. I hold that the reason support of celibacy and adequately evaluating its worth in the life of the church and the world might represent some of the most effective means to overcome this secularization, unquote. So it has an evangelical tool. And and I think part of, of this and sort of, maybe I could have put this reflection a, a little bit earlier, um, it is celibacy. It's celibacy lived joyfully uh, that, that comes from it, as we've seen. But we've talked so much about the gift of self, but there is also that other dimension of receptivity, uh, which Mary and receptivity of being open to the world, of receiving the word, word. When you see, when you love, yes, you're going out, and it's a possession and attachment, but it's not keeping your arm's length. You're possessing, you're drawing others to yourself. And, and so one of the things that I've seen and often people who are called to priesthood, particularly religious life, okay, I get the sense that their heart is too big just to contain one person or a few people. It's so big they could put the whole world into it. Mother Teresa, she pray, Lord, break my heart so completely the whole world fits into it. Uh, that when you do love and the people who are given to you as a parish priest or as a religious, yeah, you're praying for them, but not at an arm's length. You're receiving them into yourself. Uh, there's a receptivity because it's gift and receptivity on both parts. Just as they receive the love, um, you receive them. And of course, ultimately, they end up receiving you. And there's this whole dimension of how the child helps the father or the mother uh, step into their identity. Um, but you're creating a safe place for them, creating a home. Um, a place where they belong. And more and more, this idea of family, of belonging, of safety, becomes so crucial because this is what people are looking for, particularly many of them who may be affected by sexual brokenness, trauma, uh, and the stuff that we've discussed in class, that, that not only the, the heart of the priest or the religious, but in the parish can be a place of belonging where they feel safe, where they feel welcomed, and celibacy on a spiritual dimension is a unique opportunity uh, to make room for that type of belonging. So in, in the notes that I am going to post, there's a much longer um, quote from Balthazar uh, from that essay that I had you read about um, celibacy. Um, but I, I think it is. It's, it's valuable for healing hearts, but also part of the great spiritual battle in the world. Um the evil one hates images of God and of Mary, and the priest and the religious are those images. Uh, and the purer we are, the better we image it. And so, yeah, there's going to be attacks, as we are going to see. Uh, but yet, celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, total self-gift, is a powerful weapon 
that helps it to be lived out fully. So that's the reflection for today on celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. I know it's a lot, um, and then we're going to come back and sort of really, in the next couple of classes, look at it as it's lived out, particularly in the life of the priest.